0: All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show.
1: Straight after school, I went to work for this private membership community. I was then working with Nike in the office. I had a few other kind of brand entertainment jobs. What ended up happening is that I was in the scene and in the swing of it, but then I had like life hit me in the face where I got sat down one day and just got fired. I got let go, right? The company was going under, they couldn't sustain their revenue, you know, whatever. The CEO was like, look, we can't go on this way. So we're letting all these people go, which was pretty much everyone, but like the partners and the people who obviously integral to the business. And so then overnight, my identity was stripped away i'd had three years of going this is interesting this is cool i'm now part of this entertainment community i'm on this kind of pathway to being like a la bigwig in the scene and overnight it's a bit like oh you've taken the job and the label away and no one actually cared who i was anymore
0: hey there's light watkins your host and we are back with another story from the end of the tunnel If this is your first time listening to the show, here's what you're in for. I interview luminaries, artists, philanthropists, creatives, basically anyone who has gone above and beyond to be the change that they want to see in the world. Sometimes they start movements or they create films or they write books that inspire people. And in the case of this week's guest, they wrote a book that will teach you gentle wisdom through the ancient practice of Sinbazuru, which is Japanese for the art of folding a thousand paper cranes. The author's name is Michael James Wong. He is a dear friend of mine. And his book, also called Sinbazuru, actually came out the same week as my most recent book, Knowing Where to Look. And one of the things that we talked about in our interview was how similar the styles of those books are. They are both books with gentle wisdom and axioms and parables. They both have thoughtful illustrations with hidden Easter eggs for the reader. They're both meant to be cracked open anywhere in the book and they don't have to be experienced linearly. They both have a foundation of meditation, which is a through line through the books. And they both have similar orange color schemes. It's quite uncanny, but what I found super fascinating about Michael's book is he teaches the reader how to fold a paper crane, which is a practice that is said to change you if you are intentional and mindful and patient about it while you're doing it, over the course of a thousand times. So it's kind of like its own little meditation practice. And it's not a practice that he came up with necessarily, but he does a beautiful job of making the ancient practice of folding paper cranes accessible and relatable for us modern readers. Michael also created a couple of really significant communities where he lives in London, including a community called Just Breathe, which is similar to a community that I started in Los Angeles called The Shine. It is a community that's centered around meditation and live music, and he developed a corresponding app also called Just Breathe, which has its own international community, as well as a community called The Boys of Yoga. He's a gifted teacher. He's a speaker. He's a podcaster. And he's got a fascinating backstory of growing up in California in a Chinese household with Kiwi roots. Fascinating, right? And as always, he ended up using everything that he experienced in his younger years, good and bad, to settle into his current day purpose, including being asthmatic. I cannot wait for you to hear his story. Before we get into that conversation, though, I do want to let you know about my online community, which is called The Happiness Insiders. The Happiness Insiders basically picks up where this podcast leaves off as the overall goal of sharing these kinds of conversations about path and purpose is to remind each of us that we all have a greater purpose, a personal mission. And while it's one thing to know that intellectually, it's another thing altogether to take the leap of faith in the direction of our personal mission. And so that's the goal of The Happiness Insiders. It's about giving you the tools for cultivating happiness within through various inner Practices like meditation and gratitude and weekly goal setting and other exercises for overcoming fear and accessing your potential, et cetera, et cetera. And then to use those practices to create a more purposeful life. So if you feel ready for that kind of spiritual adventure, you can find more information about it at thehappinessinsiders.com, which I will include in the show notes as well. There's a three day free trial and you'll get access to the seven day meditation kickstart. For free just by going on and checking it out. So do that when you can. It's the happinessinsiders.com. And in the meantime, let us get to the story behind Sin Bazuru and see exactly how Michael James Wong found his calling as a meditation teacher and author of such a transformational book. Oh, and a quick note: if you hear some noises in the background. That is the sound of Michael's cute little dog, Gus, playing with his toys while we're having the conversation. So that's what that is. All right, let's get right to it. Michael James Wong, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to At the End of the Tunnel. Such an honor having you on here. You and I have gone back several years now, it seems at least. It's kind of hard to determine time with the pandemic sandwiched in there, but I think our spirits go back way, way further than that. And I feel like we are kindred spirits, especially after having read your book, Sinbazuru. We're going to talk about that, but I'd like to start the conversations off talking about childhood. Thinking back to little Michael, I know you were born in New Zealand and you eventually moved to Santa Monica. So I'm sure your earlier memories are probably from the Santa Monica days. But when you think back to your you know, your six, seven-year-old days and the toys and the activities that you were obsessed with? What were some of those ones that you remember the most fondly?
1: For me, that was a real joyful time. I mean, just like this is a real joyful time to catch up with you. Like you said, I mean, Mm -hmm. we always cross paths, a lot of places, a lot of different times of the year. So it's, it's a real true, humbling space to be able to catch up with you. So I appreciate being here with you and everyone here listening. I mean, I grew up in Santa Monica, but I was always an individual from a family of immigrants, you know, my ethnic background is Chinese, I was born in New Zealand. The family culturally was from New Zealand. So essentially we had a Kiwi household in North of Montana, Santa Monica, you know? And so I grew up in those early years. We moved there when I was about four years old with a cross section of a lot of things that I remember from an early age where, you know, like typical childhood, you know, let's say Ninja Turtles and GI Joes. But at the same time, you know, I was an all blacks fan as a kid growing up because rugby was a big thing in our house at the same time. I spent a lot of time early on playing piano and learning Chinese and spending time in kind of little cultural centers, because that was the mixed diversity of my background and my family. So for me, growing up in those times, there was a lot of joy from a lot of different places that didn't really suit, I guess, a specific narrative. But for me, that was just my normal kind of way of, of growing up those years.
0: You described in your book <clears throat> that you started doing the paper crane thing early. When did that actually start?
1: It started when I was probably around that time, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. I would go as far as to say, and I asked my mom this again, as I was writing the book, is it, you know, was it cultural? Was it creative? Or was it something to distract the children? Because, you know, I've, I've got an older brother younger sister. So at the time the house was full and quite busy, but I learned it as, as a practice of, of dedication, a practice of attention, a practice of patience. And it was really about when I first learned it from my mom and we learned it at kind of different cultural centers and family friends and those types of things. It was about both how can we be specific in our actions and be soft in our outcomes and really have an intentionality to what we're doing. And that always stuck with me at, at it, you know, from an early age to now. And it was never something that was, I must do it this way and it needs to be perfect. It was more about take time to do something that while your ego wants a certain outcome, just do it for the sake of doing it as opposed to trying for it to get somewhere perfect or to be something better.
0: That sounds very beautiful and poetic. Was that how your parents actually presented it to you when you were six, no, and seven years no, old? <laughs> no,
1: of course, of course not, of course not. That, I mean, that, that's me in perspective, in hindsight, it was, let's say a couple hours before dinner, sit down and do this because there's no more homework to be done, but there's nothing else that we need to do. And, you know, they were busy, they were working jobs and they were cooking dinner and they were, you know, keeping the house together. And so in, in those initial stages, it was just a way to like, keep us in one place, to keep us in the same room, to keep us relatively quiet and to keep us focused on something else. And so, I mean, I appreciate you calling me out on that because it is that sense of, you know, the hindsight says there's a beautiful kind of lesson in all this. Probably at the time, it was more a frenetic way of saying, sit there so I can carry on with the rest of the day.
0: Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the HappinessInsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. Did they do it with you? Had they done a thousand cranes? Like your parents crane masters and meditation gurus, and you didn't realize it at the time?
1: No, no, neither of that. I mean, I would say, I would, I mean, my mother had kind of, let's say earlier on when she was younger, and it wasn't the sense of we're doing this as a tradition passed down. It was, here's a tradition that we can rebring to life and have a little bit more dedication with. I think growing up, my dad always said he did it, but obviously, you know, he probably didn't. And it was that sense of, you know, we learned it as a way of passing on a tradition, but, In a modern era of let's do this together as a family.
0: Being a family of immigrants in Santa Monica, obviously there were some racial stereotypes and whatnot you experienced when you were a kid, maybe some stuff your parents experienced that they may or may not have talked about in the house. What was that conversation like in the Wong household with you, your brother, your sister, your parents being Chinese immigrants in this very white Mm. city? In America.
1: The narrative of our, at our house was always twofold. One was being Asian and one was being from New Zealand or being from mm-hmm. another country, you know, being Asian, being the first obvious one. Cause you look a different way and Wong, you know, very easily rhymes with Ching Chong and all the other kind of racial slurs that you hear as you grow up. And, you know, it was very prevalent, even in a very kind of Western liberal city like Santa Monica. But at least in that aspect, we weren't the only Asian American family that were in town. We had cousins who lived down the street. And so there was a little bit more of an appreciation of kind of community there. I think early, in, early on in those years, I mean, this is kind of like the early 80s, and it sounds surprising now being from New Zealand was like being from another country, right? You sounded Mm -hmm. funny because it's, Mm american english but slightly weirder slightly more different right my parents Mm -hmm. had really thick accents and so now these days you know these days maybe it's easier to you know we're a bit more global of a human race back then it's oh someone from new zealand oh that's kind of like australia but somewhere different or you sound kind of funny and i remember in school i had to put in my wallet like a photocopy of what essentially what you're called in the u.s a resident alien when you are an immigrant. And so I had this resident alien card that I'd have to walk around. And oftentimes, you know, it was like my parents' way of saying, you're allowed to be here. So if anyone asks you what's going on, show them this resident alien card. And that probably came from the fact that my parents were still a little bit hesitant of that sense of belonging. Like I need to protect my children with the right tools or the right documents to prove that we're allowed to be here. Because we came over to the US because my dad's job transferred him here. It wasn't like we're choosing to go to America because it's a new way of life. It was just a bit like, oh, next month you guys are going to to LA. So they left behind family, <laughs> they left behind friends. They left behind everything. We literally only had my my dad had a second cousin, as I said, or two second cousins and they had their families, but we did not know anyone else. And so we were always the wongs with the funny accents who live north of Montana, who were kind of, you know, those guys. And they're, you know, they're small little Asians who are kind of funny and they sound a bit funny. And so we were always a little bit on the fringe of any kind of bubble for those first few years of being there. And as a kid, you feel that quite heavily, right? You feel that you walk straight into elementary school and someone's already calling you up because you're Asian. And because at the time obviously had a different accent and my parents, you know, kind of spoke funny when they picked me up. And in my school lunches, I had stuff that probably weren't in your school lunches. And, you know, you know, sometimes it's, you know, you've got, Asian food and snacks. And other times you've got like little, let's call it like New Zealand sweets and treats and meat pies and things that just fundamentally are different. And so people sometimes find challenge with differences. And especially as a kid, that's really it's a lot of impact on your upbringing.
0: Were there any mantras or ideologies that your parents would echo to you and your siblings when you guys were growing up? Any of that kind of immigrant wisdom that you remember?
1: I wouldn't say that it was like strong singular mantras or like statements that we kind of kept above the kind of fireplace, but our family was very much about, you always belong. You're allowed to be in this space. You're just as good as everyone else. My parents are very, very loving. They're very, very supportive. And, they're, and my dad's very outgoing. And so he kind of took the brunt of it of making a lot of space for us. So he was the soccer coach. He was the Boy Scout leader. He was like the first to volunteer at the Christmas tree lot where we were kind of working over the summer. And so he kind of put himself out there in the firing line to take the flack or the slack or or the airtime for the family. So we felt a bit more welcomed because he was already assistant coach on the soccer team. So naturally, we get to start on the team and we get to be part of the conversation And so we didn't really feel a lot of those resistance early on because my parents made it a very conscious decision to put themselves out there so that we felt that we kind of belonged in those spaces.
0: What about you? Like growing up, coming up as a teenager, did you put yourself out there much like in school and did you join different clubs and activities and sports and everything like that?
1: I mean, I joined everything because it was a, it was a way of finding out who I was, you know, my family, Culturally, it's a very success-oriented thing, right? Academics were very important. Doing well in school wasn't an option, right? It was just a given. You know, so there was an element of you are going to study, you are going to succeed, you are going to go to a good college, you know, and and maybe a little bit stereotypically, what kind of doctor are you going to be, as opposed to what are you going to do when you grow up? I remember one of those big family moments that I mean we laugh about, but it was a glimmer of seriousness when my dad was like to my little sister, oh, you're not going to law school, right? it was like those little things, those cultural generational things that pulled through. But I I mean, I played soccer, I played volleyball, I was in the marching band, I was in the orchestra, I was a Boy Scout, I volunteered. And all of that was out of interest, but also out of necessity to reach the next level, right? I think we all remember you go to high school knowing that you need to build up your repertoire so you can get into a decent university. And in order to do that, you got to stack yourself with... AP classes and volunteer stuff and show up for all these things. And that just became my natural MO of, can I do as many things as possible and try to use that as my way to build an identity, but also maybe guarantee a little bit of success where maybe if I just hung back and let's say followed just a pure passion, it might have been a bit more of a questionable outcome
0: who did you discover yourself to be while you were doing all those things in relationship to everyone else? And what I'm asking is, were you the leader? Were you the creative type? Were you the instigator? Were you the funny guy? Like, Who who were you?
1: I was what you would probably call really solid, like nougat. I wasn't the chocolate. I wasn't like the caramel. I wasn't like peanuts. I was like I was good at, you know, supportive with the group. I was always, I was a good participant in any activity. So it's like, I was good on the soccer team because, you know, I wasn't the best, but I could play. Oh, you want to go do music? Cool. I can get involved in that. So with the peer group that I had, which I had, like a lot of people had your pockets based on the sports you play or the music you do. I was very much a confident and a comfortable part of the core group, but never the leader, but also never the last one picked. Because I spent a lot of my own time perhaps sacrificing my own freedoms to become proficient or arguably good at things so I could use my skills as a sense of belonging.
0: What did you envision yourself becoming when you, quote, grew up?
1: My vision in those days were narrow, right? I was, am I going to go to law school? Am I going to go to med school? What kind of business am I going to do? I had a very narrow trajectory kind of when I was a a teenager because that's all I knew. Because my parents were always like, go to school, you go to higher education, you get a full-time regular job. And that's what success looks like. Because that's the way that they grew up. So that was passed on to me. And that was always in my field of vision all the way through high school, all the way through college. And it wasn't until later that things kind of maybe shifted a bit.
0: Did that idea of success align with where you were within yourself in high school or did it feel a little bit off at the time?
1: I'd like to say I I had the the awareness to know it was a little bit off, but I think Because of the friendship group I had that were all very smart, very academic, very cultural, very athletic, I had this group that were somehow just great and amazing and all kinds of things that I were kind of spending my time in. And so that just felt like that was all there really was. I didn't grow up with a lot of friends who were off kind of just making music for the sake of me making music. They were making music because they were arranging an orchestral piece that they were going to use to apply to go to whatever, Berkeley School of Music. So, I mean, I probably grew up with a very academic crowd who were very focused on what the next step was. And so that became my identity because that's just all I knew at the time.
0: But you were also growing up in the center of entertainment So, you're seeing, I'm sure, kids wanting to go become actors and musicians.
1: And it was kind of the opposite, though, because where I grew up now, if you're familiar with kind of LA or Santa Monica geography, I grew up north side of Montana, which is essentially the upper middle class entertainment elite. Like, and I joke now because I'm older. I lived three blocks up from like Matt Groening, who created The Simpsons, Arnold Schwarzenegger lived a block over. There was a few years where Mike Tyson lived across the street. Doc Rivers, the basketball coach, lived two blocks down. Like, so I was surrounded by all of it. And I went to school with a lot of like the kids of these people. Right. And so that was just, oh, that's just what people do. Like, one of the kids I grew up with, his dad was the producer on Cocktails, the movie from like the eighties. It's like all that stuff was so, it was so normal that it wasn't aspirational because it's like who doesn't have someone within their, immediate circle that has done something in entertainment because that's just like the MO. Like our my quote, I guess family, like my aunt who's not family, but like you know, the family family friend kind of aunt. You know, she ran the Playboy Jazz Festival for 20 years. You know, there's all these kind of people that had these little glimmers of entertainment excitement. But when you're when you grow up in that kind of narrative, it's just kind of, oh, I didn't realize people didn't have that in their vision. And so mm-hmm. I actually didn't have those aspirations because you know, it wasn't exciting or different. That was almost like the baseline where exciting was, oh, well, I actually don't know anyone who's an accountant or, you know, a doctor or, you know, all these kind of other things that were kind of maybe a little, maybe what my people might see as the, the more regular trajectories.
0: You decided to attend UCLA stay in town.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I went to UCLA on a, on a music scholarship, actually. I okay. stayed in town because... So you were good. Uh, I mean, I was all right. I suppose I got by on, on some skill set and uh, and a good relationship with my high school music teacher. And, you know, Santa Monica High School was a feeder program for UCLA anyway. And maybe we had some, you know, some good courtesies between the two. But, you know, I went there on a, on a music scholarship. And when I lived there, most all of my friends left town and went somewhere else. I grew up quite shy and quite real, like connected to my family, especially my mom. So I was actually scared to leave. So I was like, I don't want to leave because I'm not sure I can do this by myself. Right. Mm-hmm. I had such a supportive childhood that I'm really close with my, my, my mother, my parents and my brothers and my sisters. And so I was like, I'd like to stay. Cause maybe being here, I feel a bit more comfortable. I, you know, I was adverse to change. I was resistant to kind of picking up and going to a brand new sitting having to be an adult. So getting the scholarship, being able to be in, at UCLA, being able to stay in LA, it ticked a lot of boxes. So it very quickly became the only choice that was suitable for me at the time.
0: That's interesting because obviously that shifted a little bit later. I'm curious to hear how that whole yeah. thing shifted. But first I want to ask about the cranes. Are you, did you do a thousand at this point? Are you, are you still doing yeah. them every now and again? <laughs> what, what occasions are, they, are you doing
1: them other than to impress women? You mean like back then? Yeah, when you're sure, like yeah. in college. Yeah. I mean, you can kind of use paper cranes kind of the same way as you might like buy some flowers or write a write a nice kind of greeting card. You know, oftentimes we would put them or i put them, you know, with a birthday card or, you know, they're they're the same way as you know, you might gift someone like five pounds on their birthday or give them a little red envelope. So I would always add them to birthday presents. I would go through phases where I'd feel a bit kind of spun out and I go, okay, cool. I'm just going to sit here, not count them, but just spend some time doing them in those earlier years. And and it's taken a bit until I've got older to actually go, I'm going to make this a thing. I'm going to do a thousand. I'm going to do the whole year. I probably Mm -hmm. didn't have the patience back then to get through it and it was more about this is just something to do in a moment where I'm trying to kind of regain some grounding or use it as a, as a nice creative way to add some of myself into a different situation.
0: So all your friends and close associates had received paper cranes from you at one point or another. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, a lot of people would have gotten them usually in like a birthday card. It's like you put it inside the birthday card and you know, you kind of fly it out with the card through the mail. These days, like we'd include them in like anytime we're sending out books or sending out a manual for a training or sending a thank you card to someone who's sent a nice note or something like that. It always, in my family, was just a, a very simple and gentle offering that showed that you had done more than just write thank you in a card, right? Because you know, this, right? folding a crane, if you're doing it really well, maybe five minutes. If you're not doing it that well... 10 minutes, right? So, it it shows an act of giving time, not just giving words or giving money or giving sweet pleasantries.
0: At the same time, you could do this in your sleep. I mean, you've pretty much mastered it at this point. You've I mean, now so I can.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've probably, I've done thousands in my life now at this yeah. point, but it's also the fact that it's sometimes you're doing it for speed because you're trying to do some for something, but sometimes you just, you just do it because it's just a simple practice. That's yeah. just a nice way to pass time. And then actually, you know, like all other meditative, contemplative practices, it just brings you back into something simpler.
0: So how did you shift away from this sort of narrow mindset of becoming a lawyer or a doctor And then ultimately majoring in music, which has nothing to do with that, right? So maybe there's, I don't know if there's some tension between you and your family around that, but to working in Hollywood, and I'm assuming you were a party promoter for Uh, several years.
1: I worked in a private membership community and I did entertainment marketing and events. But I mean, the backstory behind that is actually, my parents never saw anything that I did as negative. They're super supportive. And And I think most of all, the pressures that I felt about being successful in school or being a lawyer or a doctor, that was me just interpreting maybe Mm -hmm. our family life. And my parents are super, super supportive about everything, right? My brother actually, you know, he went off and my brother has got like his master's in entrepreneurship and runs like a digital agency and insurance. And my sister's like in, in media. And so everyone did all kinds of different things. I think for me, when I went to university, went to UCLA, I had the first time in my life this sense of personal accountability. Where growing up in high school, I was kind of friends with the same kids I was friends with since I was ten years old. You just kind of added more as you got through high school. But like my core group of friends, we were friends since we were ten. So when right. you get to when we got to UCLA, I generally started over with like one friend, and so it was this kind of new exploration of being a little bit older maybe a little bit less in the drama of any kind of high school narrative and just being saying, what do I actually am interested in? What do I like to do? Like that freshman year of of UCLA, you know, I did obviously had to do a lot of music, but I did like, art class. I did like a tap dancing class. I did astrophysics. I did like a stats class. And then, you know, I did all kinds of random classes because I generally had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I'll be honest. I took the music scholarship because I wanted to go to UCLA, not because I wanted to be a musician. Right. <laughs> it was a means it gave, to an end. It was a means to an end. But as soon as I got there, I was like, I don't actually know what I want to do. I was mm-hmm. like, I definitely don't want to be a lawyer or a doctor because that's <laughs> just not that interesting. But when you get to college, you don't actually know what's at the end end of the tunnel. And you don't even know half the classes you're signing up to. I remember signing up to astrophysics because I went to this orientation where people were like trying to sign up for classes. And then a few people on the floor that I lived on were signing up for that class. So I was like, okay, cool. I'll do that too. Because I know a few people that are signing up for this class. No idea what was going on, but it led me to making some friends in that class. And that kind of gave me a few kind of, you know, the next dot connected the next dot that connected the next dot that ended up leading me into allowing myself to experience a lot of things as an adult that actually allowed me to figure out, do I actually like it as opposed to, should I be doing this? Or is this a productive means to an end?
0: You mentioned somewhere, I think in an article that you did your best work as an adult in the early years between... Mm. 9 to 5, but
1: not 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., 9 yeah, p.m. to and so w- w- And it's true. I mean, bro, at that point now, it was kind of that antithesis of what I was saying earlier is that now I was in college, I was like the local. So I was like one of the only kids from L.A. because everyone else who went to UCLA, kind of like came in from like Middle America or East Coast or Northern California. Yeah. So all of a sudden I was like the kid who knew everything was going on but I didn't know that much. I just know that like you should take Olympic instead of, you know, Wilshire. And, you know, if you're interested in getting a good burger, go here and not there. And so all of a sudden I was the inside scoop. I think I always had a gravitational pull to the arts and creative things for music and other things like that. But I never had the confidence to think I could do any of it. Like I had friends who, who have now become like, a-list actors who are like musicians and artists and doing amazing things. And they were like that since we were kids. Right. But I was always like, Oh yeah, I yeah, know I'll do that, but I'll just chickened out because of like, Oh, I'm the academic kid or like whatever. And so in university I got to explore that stuff. And one of those things was entertainment. What is it like to go? I worked at the Grammys for like four years in the summertime or not sometime in the whatever window that is February where I'd go and just volunteer my time to help, be like a runner around but I got to like go to the show every year and all of a sudden I'm like backstage having one-on-one chats with whoever celebrity or artist and I'm actually getting an insight on all these worlds and because of it let's call it the academic or the success side of me I was like okay well how do I make this sustainable how do I build this into a job so I like interned one summer at like a PR agency and then I interned one summer at like Nike working in their west coast offices for like where they like give away free shoes for to cool people and stuff like this. And so I'd always like little tastes of it. And then I ended up getting a job at this private membership community club thing that only lasted for about four or five years. Let's call it like 2002 to 2005. Let's call it like the Britney Spears era where it's like, this is like the Britney Spears and boy band era. And all of a sudden now I'm out at, from 9pm to 5am every night hustling around, knowing people, being interested, being in cool places. It was just such a foreign territory for me that I just felt like a whole new sense of discovery of what life was like because I lived quite a kind of down the line, typical academic, go to college, safe childhood.
0: What were you learning about community and community building at that time, watching this private members community get built and, you know, all the actor community and the music community. Was there any conscious awareness of, wow, these people are able to build this thing and other people are responding in such and such way?
1: I think what I loved about it was there was this gravitational pull of like-minded people coming together. Right. And that environment was more like entertainment people, like social people, nightclub people. But it was this kind of, you look around the room with everyone is here with like a similar perspective or a similar mm-hmm. appreciation of things. In high school, it was never like that because you had your academic friends, your sports friends, your Boy Scouts friends, your art friends. And so you kind of connected on a non-activity or identity level It was just kind of, you know, childhood friend-like status. So I learned a lot in those communities as I got older in the kind of that private membership communities of saying, actually, if you create spaces where people have a like-minded perspective or have a sense of belonging or all just really love the same things, then actually you have these really amazing connections where people are passionate to chat about things, to talk about things, to come back and add things to the conversation. And that was really intoxicating for me at the time because I'd never experienced it that way.
0: So what ultimately shifted and propelled you to move to Australia?
1: For me, moving to Australia, it was I was 25 years old. So it was about three years after I finished school. And straight after school, I went to work for this private membership community. I was then working with Nike in the office. I had a few other kind of brand entertainment jobs. And what ended up happening is that I was in the scene and in the swing of it. But then I had like life hit me in the face where I got sat down one day and just got fired. I got let go, right? The company was going under, they couldn't sustain their revenue, you know, whatever. And the CEO was like, look, we can't go on this way. So we're letting all these people go, which was pretty much everyone, but like the partners and the people who obviously integral to the business. And so then overnight, my identity was stripped away. I'd had three years of going, this is interesting. This is cool. I'm now part of this entertainment community. I'm on this kind of pathway to being like a LA bigwig in the scene. And overnight, it's a bit like, oh, you've taken the job and the label away and no one actually cared who I was anymore. I had no aces up the sleeve to pull. They're like, oh, come to this event, go to that event. Were you
0: blindsided or did you kind of see it coming?
1: I probably thought I was immune to it thinking like I would be on the stay in the group as opposed to the get out group. And, you know, I was 25. So it was naive to the fact that everyone's indispensable, except for those with equity and those who are obviously running the business. And they were just downsizing. They were taking it into a different sphere. They were kind of shutting it down for a while and going to start doing little things. And it was this thing where I got blindsided by it. And I was like, you know, I went home and I spent some time with my parents and I was I remember this quite profoundly that because it had all been stripped away, I was like, I need to do something and I'm not sure what to do. And my brother at the time lived in, in Sydney and my brother moved to Australia right after high school. He was like, I'm gone. I'm going to go back to Australia, hang out with cousins and grandparents in Australia and New Zealand. And so even before I went, I remember going home back to my apartment at the time going, okay, I need to go to Australia But I don't know what to do because I can't not get a job. Like for me, the idea of not having a job, getting fired on a Thursday or Friday and have nothing to do on a Monday, that was like terrifying. Like the world is over because you got no job and you're useless essentially. So I spent like a few days, I I literally wrote like a 10 page presentation for my parents of like why I'm going to go to Australia and take six weeks off. Because I thought they would be again really disappointed that I wasn't hustling to get a job straight away. Cause that's what you should do. If you don't have a job, you get another job. So I remember I put this presentation together. I like designed the cover in like Microsoft Paint or something. And I was like, point one, go to Australia, have an overseas experience. Point two, get some more opportunity to hang out with my brother. Point three, maybe pick up some skill set so I can come back and get a job in six months. I remember sitting with my parents and I walked them through the presentation and they're like, cool, when do you leave? And I was like, genuinely, not just surprised, but like, almost like, I felt like, why are you not telling me to get a job? Why are you letting me do this? And a part of me almost feels like I wanted them to like, tell me, oh no, you should just stay and get back to work. And so they said, go, because what I didn't realize at the time is that culturally in New Zealand is that going abroad is a cultural necessity. New Zealand is such a small island in the middle of nowhere. So culturally, everyone's like, when you turn 18, you need to leave for a year or two. You need to go see some stuff. And at that point, I had done elementary school, middle school, high school, college within like a two-mile zone. And my parents were like, cool, go see the world. And so that was my big kind of, let's call it, moment of epiphany where I need to leave and see what's up. Because right now, I think the whole world revolves around L.A., And, Mm -hmm. you know, if I couldn't live here and work here, what else was there to do? And so they supported me and they said, good, get on the plane, go see your brother, come back when you're done.
0: There's one other piece of the puzzle that I wanted to just talk about briefly. You were an asthmatic. Was Mm -hmm. that still something that was happening at that time in your life when you were like 25 or so years old?
1: Yeah, I still am. I mean, I've had severe asthma since I've been four years old and I still have it to this day. And so that was always a part of it always gave me a different perspective, right? I was never able to be as active as everyone else. I always had a mindset of limitations.
0: What is something that only an, another asthmatic would understand about your experience that someone who's not, who's never had that before would, would never consider when they're like planning or doing things or whatever like that.
1: A lot of it is based on a, am I going to have an inhaler? Like, can I do this activity and not feel like I can't breathe. Most people, if you, if you don't have asthma, you don't know the feeling of not being able to breathe. You don't know the feeling of literally being fully conscious, awake, alert, but not being able to know if your next breath is going to be sustainable enough for you to kind of be okay. Just so, out of the blue or at, when you're not, exerting not usually lots out of, of the activity, blue, but but It's either exercise. You like, for me, a lot of it's allergy. Like I can walk into a room and like, I'm, pretty highly allergic to cats. If I like came to your house and you told me there were cats, I'd know within 30 seconds. And in five minutes, I'd probably be in a pretty bad situation. Right When I was younger, it's like, there were so many times I'd go to like a friend's house where it wouldn't go well. And I'd like, you'd have to run straight to the shower and like wash off all the dander or just exit the premises and get home and like get put on these big like nebulizer machines. And so like for me and for a lot of asthmatics, everything is metered on, am I going to be okay in this environment? Which is probably why I was a little risk averse to leave home during college. Like, am I going to be okay going this place? Am I going to be okay going that way? Because it's always the sense of, if things don't go okay, or I get a asthma attack, how am I going to come back from that? Like, am I going to be near an inhaler? Am I going to be able to get home or to a hospital? So those were always additional factors. Like even now, if I leave the house for a day, say I've got meeting a bunch of friends or going to a meeting and I'm leaving at like eight, I'm not going to come back till eight. If I get to like, say like lunchtime and I'm like, oh, okay, well maybe I need a little puff of my inhaler. Cause it's a, like a dusty environment or I kind of sprinted up a hill or whatever. And I don't have one that sends me into an immediate little bit of a panic of like, oh, am I going to be able to be okay? The rest of the day, right? You're metering the way in which You're going to be able to be in all these different environments. So I'm always a little bit of risk averse in those environments because I know that even from a physical point of view, I might feel discomfort if I'm not prepared.
0: Yeah. And you shared a beautiful story in the book about your mom kind of helping you in those situations by using a very simple phrase, (laughs) when she was trying to help you find Mm -hmm. your breath.
1: I mean, that's the mantra I've always used you know, in my life and something that's essentially the essence of what we do, which is just breathe. And you know, and and that's something that has a lot of personal meaning, not just let's call it general meaning and yeah. awareness. But for me it's I hear it in my mind the way that my mom would say it to me, not just me reciting it to myself.
0: Right. Yeah, sense. she would say over and over just breathe. Just yeah. breathe. And it's funny because I've known you as the just breathe guy forever. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I never thought much about I just thought, oh, that's a Clever way of you know getting people to meditate, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that has a very deeply personal meaning
1: for yeah. <laughs> and and that's and but it's also important for me that my story doesn't have to be everyone's story. And so we always do talk about it. Yeah, it's a simple way of reminding ourselves to be aware and and these types of things. But I always find if I can weave a little bit of my own story or a little bit of my own meaning into the projects that I'm doing, it supports me knowing that the work we're doing supports others.
0: You're in Australia. You've taken a few yoga classes in LA. You're staying where in your brother's couch or something. What yep. what happens?
1: I am standing on my brother's couch. And I did the typical thing where he's like, come down. You can stay on my couch, get yeah. a job, working at a restaurant on the beach, spend a month, hanging out, having fun, go back to LA, get your next job, get back cool. to it. Cool. And obviously at the time, you know, I, I mean, I did, I mean, not just a few, I mean, I did quite a lot of yoga back in LA. And this was more of the case of like, go to class, have some fun, do a practice, you know, whatever. But it, it wasn't a real, real serious thing in my life until Australia because a lot of things were taken away and the only things that were left were, okay, well, I'm in Australia. I don't really know anyone. I'm staying with my brother, but he's got his own friends, his own schedule, his own job. I literally have nothing to do. So for me, it's a bit like, okay, well, where it feels like a comfortable place to meet people, to feel a bit like I can understand this world is cool, go to the studio. And so... At the time I lived in Sydney, kind of not near the beach, but kind of in the city area. And I started going to a studio there called Power Living, which is still around today. And I just found a lot of people who loved yoga, you know, really cool people. Like it was my first time meeting a lot of Australians and New Zealanders who just happened to go to the beach and practice yoga, go out for lunch on a Tuesday, you know, and just have a different way of life that I was so foreign to. Cause I was like, why are you guys not in an office right now? And it was like, <laughs> oh, like, you know, because my job is, you know, I'm a teacher of this, or I'm an artist, or I'm a surfer, I'm a professional surfer, all these things. I had met people who had just never been, you know, on my horizon. And, you know, all my friends again, were very typical corporate America kind of trajectories and this was a place of like creatives artists athletes who that was their actually jobs and way of life people chefs stuff like that and so for me it was just a really beautiful experience that i ended up just i mean i just stayed i was like You know, my brother's like, you're going to go home soon. I was like, no, I'm going to get a job and stay and do some things here. And, you know, I was able to be able to sustain myself. I did more yoga stuff. I did more meditation stuff. I did teacher trainings. I went on retreats and I just kind of gave myself permission to live a little bit, which I hadn't done before then. I was 24, 25. And it kind of really shifted the way I saw kind of what was important for me. And that was probably the place where I found myself a little bit more or for the first time with a little clarity.
0: In terms of getting into yoga and meditation and those kind of practices, was there someone who you looked up to or aspired to be like?
1: Yeah. I mean, there was a few. But I think in those earlier years when I was in LA, I mean, I mean I'd say I, I was inspired in LA by a lot of, let's call it the old school yoga teachers, the Brian Casts, kind of the Brian Casts, you know, Eric. and the, everyone else that kind of lived in LA in kind of the early 2000s, right? You've got mm-hmm. like Shiva Ray down in Venice, and you've got Andy mm-hmm. Carpenter kind of yoga mm-hmm. works. And you kind of always <laughs> practice with them. I was really inspired by them. I didn't really know them, right? And when I went to Australia, it was kind of, let's call it the senior teachers of Australia, who arguably were probably the same age as we are now, but this is sure. 20 years ago, that they were accessible to me. They actually wanted to have a conversation with me. and They wanted to welcome me in and invite me out to lunch because they all were going to lunch after the class before they all went right. surfing. And so it was the first time that maybe the, some of my mentors or teachers were humans, right? And mm-hmm. actually real mm-hmm. people that could have a dialogue with and, you know, and they're teachers you would have never known or never heard of. They were just, and you know, I had a, a teacher who became a really good friend, Alicia young. She was an amazing teacher in Sydney. Have you ever heard of her? Probably not. But the fact that she just spent time telling me how things were like, this is how the practice works. This is what I think would be helpful for you. But also we're, you know, we're all going down to the beach after Do you want to come. And I was like, I'm allowed to come. I thought you just kind of, you know, you you come in, it's transactional, you do a class and you leave. And so that was the place where maybe hypocritically to LA, it was like, that's where I found yoga as a lifestyle. Whereas like, that's what the epitome of LA is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my brother was a huge mentor, but from a yoga point of view, it was all the teachers I did trainings with. It's all the teachers that taught in those studios at the time. You know, a lot of them I'm still in touch with and a lot of them I see when I'm down there visiting. And so it is really special to me to have those early influences who are actually, you know, big brothers and big sisters who actually said, you know what, this is a space you can be in and gave me a bit of confidence to say, you know, they said, oh, you should, you should think about teaching here. You should think about doing more, some stuff you should think about doing this. And I was just always super happy just being, you know, invited to lunch and them remembering my name in class.
0: Were you. Naturally gifted in terms of your flexibility and all of that when you when you were getting into yoga
1: no i mean i was probably I was naturally aware of movement like I knew that this arm could go up and that arm could hold me up, and so I was a quick pickup, but I wasn't flexible or aligned or able to do fancy things uh, yeah. but I was also my personality was very dedicated of I'm here and I'm gonna get here because This is what I think good looks like. Wanted to do a handstand. Couldn't do it. Six months later, I could. I wanted to be a bit more flexible, go to the classes, ask a bunch of people. You know, there was a time in Australia when I was probably 26 years old. It was 12, 13 years ago where I was practicing 14 times a week because that's all, that was my life. That's where I found friends. That's where I felt the sense of belonging. I'd wake up, I'd go to class, I'd do stuff in the day and I'd go back to class or I'd go to class at night, do two in a row because I'd see two different groups of friends. So actually the <laughs> flexibility was the byproduct of the community.
0: And what did you want to offer to the yoga community? Like what, what inspired you to want to be a teacher?
1: When I first started teaching, it was personal. Like I wanted to be able to do what those people were doing. I wanted to be able mm-hmm. to share, but I didn't have any tools to, to do that. It was really interesting for me to see, could I take the seat of a teacher and have something valuable to offer? And so I just wanted to be able to be a part of that community in Australia and and the part of the community in in LA and say, I've got something I can share. And so I did teacher trainings because I wanted to know more. I kept doing teacher trainings or kept studying or diving into more things because I wanted to educate myself, but I, I never wanted to be a teacher. I was never wanted to be a teacher for the longest time. Cause I was like, I think I could do it. It's a bit like, did I, so did I, I always wanted to be in the school play, but I was never in the school play because I never thought I'd be good enough to be in the school play. Right. I mean, I remember in like fifth grade, we were doing like a, a fifth graders version of like beauty and the beast. And for some reason, somehow I got cast as the beast, like the lead role. And then like I canceled, I like pulled out. Cause I was like, I can't do this. I was like, this is ridiculous. Why am I going to be the guy? And so, then that was always my perspective in yoga is I don't want to be the guy. I just want to have the information, have the experience, be able to share it. Still to this day, sometimes I'm, you know, I find it interesting how I've come to this place, but because it was never motivated by, by, about, can I be the guy? It was more, can I just learn more about this thing that is just fascinating and interesting and really cool. And, you know, I find really beneficial for my life.
0: What inspired the move to London?
1: when I was in Australia, it was 2011. And by that point I had been there for about four years Mm -hmm. and I had an honest chat with uh, a friend and he was like, if you're going to stay in Australia, this is like a friend in LA. He's like, if you're going to stay in Australia, you're pretty much going to be here forever now because Mm -hmm. Australia's a big island in the middle of nowhere. You're kind of not behind, but everything's slightly a bit different. And it was a bit like, you either stay and you're there for good and you teach at the studios and this is your life. And that's great. But if you want to see something else in the world, now's the time to do it. Right. Cause I was still 28 at the time. It's like, if you want to see more of the world, like Europe, and I'd never been to Europe, literally had never been to Europe. I'd been to LA, a few cities in the U S and New Zealand, New Zealand, New Zealand, New Zealand, Australia. Right. Because when your family is 10,000 miles away, any holiday is always go visit the grandparents, go visit your cousins, go visit your aunts and uncles. And so I made a conscious choice to, again, pick up and leave everything and move to London. And for me, I was okay with that. Like I was comfortable because I had always been the outsider. Like I'm not saying I would happily pick up and leave London tomorrow, but like, I'm not attached to the city. I'm attached to having experiences. And for me at that point, London was a different experience. And because I had a New Zealand passport, I literally could move there overnight by just filling out a piece of paper, which as an American growing up, you're like, you can't do that. And so I had this, it was almost this lottery ticket to go see the rest of the world, but I had a short timeline because of the way things work. Cause you had to do it before you were like 30 years old. And so it was a bit like you go now, or you are going to miss that window and you can never go. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of pulled the pin and just up and moved.
0: You told a story about your first Christmas in London. Mm -hmm. Can can you share that story of what happened and how that affected the rest of your stay there?
1: When I moved to London, it was a bit like moving to Australia. I didn't know anyone. I literally had one cousin. She was married with one kid who was like six months old. So it was literally like, you can stay in our spare room for two weeks max when you arrive. Cause it's a bit like, (laughs) we've had a kid. I'm going to do the family thing and let you stay, but there's a pretty hard timeline on this thing because you're still an adult. So 28 years old, two weeks is good enough to get yourself here, sort yourself out, and get out. And that was like August or something. And so I got in, found the first place I could live, started to do some freelance work and like marketing just so I could kind of have some income. But I didn't really know anyone. And it took me quite a while to figure out how London works as a city. There was no yoga community like it is now. I didn't know anyone, of course, like I do now. And so I spent the first few months just kind of being a tourist in town. So by the time I got to Christmas, I didn't have any viable plans that warranted me doing anything meaningful. Like, And at that point, flying back to LA, like you're talking like a $2,000 flight. And so there was a lot of things that were just not possible. And so I was never one who was like, wanted to take an invitation to someone's house for Christmas out of courtesy when you're kind of Disrupting their Christmas plans and they're just inviting you because you're the roommate that just moved in two months ago. That has nowhere to go. Right, And so I was kind of like, you know what, let me do my own thing. And so I was, okay, what can I do that can be of service? What can I do that is interesting and what's an experience that is, is, is for me? And I was just Googling around for some, you know, charity, volunteering things to do at right. Christmas. And out of just a stroke of luck, I came across an organization called Crisis. Crisis works with homeless shelters and supporting homeless people in London. And there happened to be a shelter like down the road from where I live that needed volunteers. And you go on the website, you sign up for a few shifts, and bang, you're in. So I signed up for my shifts, went there on the first day, and everyone's done a bit of volunteering growing up. and but this was like ten hours a day. Everyone's there staying there overnight. It's a full- on sheltered community. And I was like, this is actually really different for me. Everyone was equal. You've got 300 homeless guests there just talking about the football game. They're just talking about what's on TV. They're arguing over politics, the normal things, but there was so much difference that you might think from the outside of, I'm over here and you're over there. I'm at this economic status and you're of that. But you walk into a space where everyone's just equal playing bingo, like just having a Christmas bingo competition and for me, that felt like the most belonging I had ever had in London at that time. And so I ended up going back every single day and volunteering 10 hours a day for two weeks from like the 19th of December all the way through like New Year's because that was my Christmas family at that point. That was my experience of being of service to support, but realizing actually they were supporting me by just treating me like a human in a city I didn't know anyone.
0: Was the plan to get a yoga teaching position somewhere and start doing that yeah. full time or
1: Well I was I was teaching from the moment I arrived here but it okay. was so different because I was still trying to figure out where I was I ended up teaching in a few places that were like on the wrong like not the wrong side of town just like I was teaching somewhere like an hour from my house and you had all the fatigue of travel and even though I arrived in August it was a bit like it took me until the new year to figure out actually where I wanted to be. I'd even moved like once or twice before the New Year's. And so I was literally trying to figure myself out then. And I was still grasping on to the idea that, you know, am I going to stay? I ended up also having a lot of friends come to visit. So like I had people I knew, but I wasn't meeting locals. I just had my friend from LA was coming for two weeks, friend from Australia was here for two weeks. And so Like it didn't have any rhythms of rooting down. So that was why it was such a unique experience over Christmas. And it was somewhere where, I mean, like I wrote in the book, it's like, it's a place where no one there cares what you do for work because no one in there has anything to do for work. So it's a bit like, why are you talking about that? Let's just play bingo.
0: Talk about the boys of yoga. Because that that happened around that time as well, right?
1: Yeah. And that's a project that was really, it kind of came out of, a personal need for community, but then kind of spiraled and snowballed into this bigger movement, which probably a lot of people will know me from or with or a part of. I was trying to recreate those communities I felt in Australia and the lifestyle Mm. and communities I felt in LA, right? Because even while I was living in Australia, I'd still go back to LA like, you know, three, you know, two or three times. And so I really grew a big LA community of yoga, a really big Australian community of yoga. And so I got to London and literally like, at the time, there's like five yoga studios and everything was so disjointed and apart. And I was, how can I create the awareness, the accessibility and the community that I felt, you know, surf, skate culture, lifestyle, you know, lifestyle friends that I grew up that just feel like high school friends, but within the yoga community. And so mm-hmm. that project was how do we celebrate yoga just through a different lens? Through a different kind of conversation. How do we show that the practice is not, not just for guys or for girls, it was how do we open the door for everyone? And sometimes to do that is you just need to turn the lens towards a part of the community that at that point hadn't had a lot of visibility because that's not where maybe the mainstream conversation was, right? But I already knew that, I mean, you, you and I didn't know each other back then, but we come from a similar kind of space of like why would you not want more of your your boys from high school doing this kind of work and this kind of practice why would you not want your brother or your cousin why wouldn't you want someone to enjoy what you enjoy when all they're doing is just getting stuck at the door because the sign above it says yoga
0: and you've been meditating at this point for how long yeah, yeah. how many how many years
1: realistically probably at that i mean i probably i mean i started yoga and meditation back around the year, 2002 2003 probably more in the sense of the studentship of like you go to class and you do it you you know you go to a little meditation circle and you kind of get a chance to experience mm-hmm. it you know i grew up with a few friends who had like you know like well, i kind of firsted to practice with like a friend who had a grandpa who was a teacher so you yeah, kind of had these, monk. yeah you had these little spurts of experiences without knowing the bigger picture of it and again mm-hmm. it's it's different now because we live in a world and in a bubble where it's far more commonplace conversation. And so, oh, yeah, you know, every 10 year old has probably, you know, done a little meditation with their mom, which is wonderful. But that just wasn't a thing back then. And even in LA and places like Australia, where let's call that wildly Westernly progressive in these practices, it still wasn't the biggest mainstream thing. So, you know, I always found meditation first within the four walls of a yoga studio, right? Or in within like, you know, there was the come to the yoga class stay 20 minutes after for the meditation practice. And I was able to experience it early in those spaces and then found it as a continuance as I grew up and grew older, but it was in Australia where it really became a personal practice after I had a chance to spend a lot of time with my teachers there. And just be around people who did it themselves, because I didn't know anyone who practiced yoga at home or did their own personal meditation at home. Like, you just go do that in a studio.
0: Had you learned Vedic meditation at this point?
1: I first learned Vedic in, like, 2016. So, I think in the first few years, I had moved to London.
0: When you started Just Breathe, what was your day-to-day practice like and what was the origin story of that? Because that happened like a year within the year after starting the Boys of Yoga, right?
1: Yeah. So the origin story of Just Breathe was actually really, for me, really unique. I, at the point at the time with Boys of Yoga, I had... Created a lot of friends and relationships on the international kind of community because mm-hmm. I was from LA and because I spent a lot of time in Australia, and because for me it was really important to kind of be a part of a community. I just kind of knew a lot, I was in lots of different kind of friendship circles, which was kind of a unique space to be in. And I ended up teaching quite a few wanderlusts back in like 2015, 2016, in those in those first few years of, of Boys of Yoga, where literally I remember we had launched boys of yoga. And like three months later, I got a random email in the same week from like wanderlust HQ in New York and Elena Brower going, Hey, let's do some yoga stuff together. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm in. And (laughs) I had this beautiful experience of like being able to do wanderlust in Bryant park in New York with Dharma Mitra. Right. And those earlier years where it was like 8,000 people, Dharma Mitra, and, you know, some amazing teachers. And I had these experiences that were so powerful, but then I kept realizing that in the space of the wanderlust, it was always about the running and the yoga. And there was no spaces where there was just about the stillness, the quiet, the meditation, right? And at the time there, there weren't big meditation events. There weren't things happening. You know, this is like, You know, they're the only people you'd ever hear whispers of, oh, you know, that guy Light Watkins from, you know, from the U.S. He does some retreats. He does some things, does wanderlust. But there weren't 25 of you kind of really pushing an amazing message and giving people access to it. There wasn't a lot Mm -hmm. of digital content. I think it was like right at the beginning of kind of when like the Big Quiet was starting to launch in New York with Jesse and all his stuff. But I was also like from London. So I was like on the other side of the world. So there's nothing where we were doing it. Mm -hmm. And I remember doing Wanderlust and I was doing it. Uh, I just finished the Australian tour like in 2016. And this was, I was doing the yoga. Johnny Pollard was teaching meditation. We had a bunch of like amazing teachers, like Dustin Brown was teaching, Josh Blau, uh, Jason Tapatu, all these teachers from Australia, New Zealand. They were kind of the amazing teachers down then. Mm -hmm. And I became really good friends as well with Arlie Lieberman, the guitarist, if you remember Mm -hmm. him. He did a lot of Wanderlust. Of course. And being a fellow Kiwi or lived in New Zealand, we obviously had a really good friendship. And he was like, oh, I'm coming to Europe just for holidays or something. And I was mm-hmm. like, so I had this moment where I'm like, if you're coming over here, why don't we try to create a moment here in London that is mimicked how we were doing it in Australia? Right? This is before mm-hmm. Wanderlust in the UK, before any big festival, before any like Lululemon, any kind of, there was no bigger, wider community proposition it was a lot of studios and things like that and so i said let's try to do it and he was like do you think it'll work and i said i have no idea and we took like we went and rented out this little this little brick room that was kind of cool in shortage which was just kind of like a cooler area of town and we we're like put up some lights and we you know we put some candles out and borrowed, borrowed like 50 bolsters from the local yoga studios and the leader just said you know what let's just invite everyone for five bucks. It'll all go to charity. And let's see if we can get like 30, 40 people to come through called everyone. I knew called all the people who like went to yoga class. And I said, no yoga mats, no yoga clothes, bring your friends, bring the people from your office, bring your neighbors. And we're going to come and do an evening of meditation and live music. And so it was like, for me, it felt really risky to move away from the yoga conversation at that point, because we're doing a lot with boys of yoga. I was traveling already a lot for, for teaching, but I felt this need to, how do we create access to the everyday lifestyle general public where come in your suit and tie. That's cool. Bring your dog. Cool. Bring your parents and come and just not like, and we still say this today, like it should be the most uneventful event you've been to, right? It should be an uneventful evening. And on that first day, like we literally were like chomping at the bit going, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And that was like 300 people who showed up, 300 people who generally had no idea what they were there for, other than like, I'm at this cool event, maybe, and there's some music, some live music and some meditation thing. And from there, it just kind of snowballed and spiraled. And we were inspired and we did, you know, we did the first one, then we did the second one, then we did the third one. And then, you know, we ended up doing two or three a year up until the pandemic. And we did, you know, one with a thousand people at the Tate Modern Museum, the Turbine Hall. We did one with a couple thousand people at the British Museum, you know, all these cultural institutions and museums and event places and theaters were like come in and help us create a moment of community that has, represents the fabric of London that isn't just about being in a studio.
0: I'd never been to a Just Breed event, but I obviously knew about them and heard about them. And I was doing my thing in LA called The Shine, which I was inspired by the Conscious Club in Australia and Sydney. Did you ever go to those Conscious Club events?
1: I never went to a big one. I kind of went to, you know how they sometimes did like the, not like the after party, but like the yeah, had the like the side of mini events and stuff like that. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, but yeah. yeah. But I was at Jesse's uh, first Big Quiet and it was so awesome to see all these things happening on these different continents. All right, it was so really, listen. But
1: it, but it just was on that thing. It was really important and interesting for me because, like, all of those things kind of all sprung up around the same 12 month window in like mm-hmm. four different places around the world. But what was really inspiring for me is being either like connected to or one step connected to. It's like I wasn't friends with Jesse at the beginning of it because I only met him through like Johnny and Josh and that Johnny. Kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's all those kind of connections, but it was everyone was doing. Amazing, similar things, and it was just it was it was great to finally see that actually we weren't just yoga and meditation and wellness in the corner in those little studios behind closed doors. It's oh wow, we're doing it with live music. There's spoken word. There's conversation. I remember coming to the, the your guys the Shine event in London and going, "This is you know everyone's like oh wow, are you going to be offended that you know they're now doing another Just free Style <laughs> event in London?" It's like no, because. It, Like there's no such thing as too many and light is the guy that you want to go and spend this experience with. I mean, I don't know if you remember me coming to that event, but I think it was amazing to see that there were more things happening here because a lot of time in London, we just defer to America and Mm -hmm. go, oh, well, they're doing it there. So let's just look at that stuff. And it felt homegrown, even though I wasn't British or I am now. Yeah. It didn't feel like there was homegrown things happening here, which is really important to me because a global yoga community, a global wellness community, a global meditation community only makes sense if there's participation from places that are everywhere.
0: I could keep talking about this because, you know, I have a lot to say about starting movement and stuff, but I I want to shift a little bit and talk more about your book. Because it kind of caught me by surprise. First of all, I didn't know you had a book coming out the same day that I had a book coming out. And then <laughs> Neither. Sec- second of all, it was very similar, I felt, in intention and even the way it was laid out. And even
1: like the color palette, like the all color things.
0: palette, everything. And it was and, and I didn't get a chance to read it until recently. And I was like I'm a dude, I'm a super fan. Of your book. And if anyone's listening to this and you are a fan of knowing where to look, you would love this book. So Simbazuru, it literally translates as a thousand paper cranes. I would have expected that you were going to write a book about meditation, just breathe, you know, that whole brand, blue and white or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And you come out with this other thing. And 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 it's so well written and it's so thoughtfully. Curated and mm, it's so gentle, as you say, and you have these little proverbs and axioms. And I'm, I, I was curious. I don't mean to insult you, but did you come up with all of those yourself, yeah. or those like yeah. old wisdom, wisdoms that you heard growing up, or something? Or because those were like, it's like, where have you been writing all this stuff, man? And how are you such an amazing uh, writer? I, think, I mean, like
1: I think, that yeah, story I
0: mean, with Koa that opens the book. Did you write? Like, is that a yeah. story that you literally? Created And, yeah, and yeah. Or was that like an old tale you heard and put it yeah, in your own
1: uh, words? So to give a little context, I never fancied myself as a writer growing up. Right. My sister was the creative one. My sister was like full scholarship for, for arts. And, you know, she, she went to Boston college on a full ride. She was like valedictorian. Like my sister was like the golden child. My brother was like the responsible one. I was kind of just like left to my own devices to kind of like carry on as the narrative that's been set. So I was never fancying myself as a writer. And the only reason I ever got into writing books is because of the Boys of Yoga movement, where one of my friends was also a student and did like retreats with us. She was a book agent. And she's like, you need to turn this into a book. And I was like, how would I do that? And she's like, well, you've got the project. You've got you know everything that's on the website. Build that and just create it into a book. And so I did that for the first book. And that went well. And it kind of that was more of, let's call it a celebration of what that project was. And then, after she read that, and people started reading that, you know i they said, "Oh, you know the writing is good," and I was like, "Okay, I mean, I enjoyed this process, and so this was kind of let's call it two thousand nineteen pre pandemic and she was saying, "Okay, you need to write another book because I think you've got some great things to share." And so people don't know this, but I had actually spent the last 12 months pre-pandemic developing some new book concepts, right? And I kind of had done the thing where, I mean, you know this from writing a book, you write a whole proposal, you submit it, you hope that someone arbitrarily says it's great. And then it gives you a green light to go write the book, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of times, you know, there's a lesson in that of why do we wait for permission to do things that are interesting, but nevertheless, I was developing this book. And at the time, the book I was working on, <laughs> and I, I say this quite joking, the book was called The Uncertainty of Everything, right? Mm-hmm. And I had gotten to the point where I was ready to pitch the book and pandemic hit. And so I have this book that we're pitching and my my agent and publisher was like, there's zero chance this book is going to work this year. They're like, this is not the book that anyone's going to want to pick up. And they <laughs> said, right? And they... which. You know, I laugh and, you know, and then she comes back to me and says, you know, what the world needs right now is something gentle, something that has intentionality into it, something that is what you already do, but in a vehicle that allows people to feel it as an accessible thing. So I sat around for about two weeks going, what the F I just wrote you a 20 page proposal about the book I've been working on for 12 months. And I was having this conversation with my mom and she's like, just write what you know, like write simple things, write things that you like. And then it, I kind of had this epiphany moment because we had always used paper cranes at Just brief for like the last five years. Like every event there's paper cranes, people that's how people say hi. It's kind of how we mitigate awkward small talk by just putting out a bunch of paper and instructions and letting people kind of, you know, when you kind of normally at an event have like a cocktail hour or a mingling hour, we would just go here, spend half an hour folding paper cranes. And so it became this thing of how do I use that metaphor that's so personal to me and write, let, and let that be the narrative or the anchor for, for a new book. And everyone loved it. And it was during pandemic. And this goes actually back to the asthma thing. I was in the high risk group of pandemic where I wasn't allowed to leave the house for three months. Like I didn't get past the front door for the first 90 days of the pandemic. And so that's when I kind of just had some time to go inward and say, well, actually, how would I bring this to life? What's important for me? And I just started writing and I just wrote, you know, and I I always, I always loved poetry. I loved short form kind of ideas. I love, you know, you know, the sharpness and the witticism that you can pack into less words. And I'd always really enjoyed that, but I obviously never thought I could write it in such long form with potency. It was like the thing when they had said, okay, go write the book. And I say this, because it's, it's worth sharing. When I proposed this book, it was like a 10-page PDF with pictures in it, right? There was literally like no words in my book proposal. And so, I had a few of the quotes and a little bit of a, this is what I want to talk about. And so, I just spent the time reading lots of books, thinking about the work that I teach with, thinking about the things that are important to me, finding the way I wanted to say it, and then spending time letting the words come from it. And And I appreciate you saying that about a lot of the proverbs in there, because a lot of people say like, where'd you, like, where'd you find all these things? And I wrote them all, but they kind of just came to me. It's not like I had a process of writing. It's like, Oh, this is a thing. And you've said this to me before that sometimes you just need to make yourself available to let it kind of pass through you and out on the page. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those things just came in those quieter moments of, The early part of 2020 last year. And, you know, I actually for once gave myself the time and permission to sit down and actually say, let's put a lot of the wisdom on paper and see how it comes out.
0: Was Nikki Priest involved at the very beginning when you were doing that proposal with the photos?
1: So Nikki Priest is is my creative partner. She's the brains, the hands, the designer behind Boys of Yoga, behind Just Breathe. Every single piece of content or shiny thing that I've ever been a part of is because of Nikki Priest. And, you know, over the years, everyone's always been like, oh, everything you do is so well-polished, so well-designed, so well-put-together... Because Nikki Priest has worked on that with me. And she's what people don't realize is she is an amazing painter, illustrator. Every single thing in that book is hand painted with kind of like charcoal chalk. She then scans it in and colors it up. But the way it worked is I gave her the proverb and then she brought it to life based on mm-hmm. the words that I gave her. She said, This is what it could be, or we did a lot more kind of deep dive research, and she, you know, we mm-hmm. looked at in Asian cultures these things mean these things and there's a lot of hidden easter eggs within those illustrations mm. even, if you like, even if you like look at which way something's facing or look count how many birds are in the background or you know what kind of mouse it is or I love it man I did the, the, turtles the same are thing swimming. with my
0: book yeah I had all these yeah. easter eggs in the illustrations and it took a long time and a lot mm. of back and forth to finalize that and yours was even at the I think yours was two, three layers deeper than mine because you were also showing people how to fold a paper crane mm. throughout the book, which is like, just, it's like yeah. mind blowing. There's so many levels oh, well, of, thank you. of messaging and imagery and subtle consciousness, you know,
1: um, yeah. I mean, I mean lock it's you. just
0: amazing, man. It was, yeah. it was, it was like, it was one of the most special books I think I've ever experienced.
1: Oh well, thank you so much, and I mean, appreciated a, all man. the
0: all the all the effort that went into that. I mean, it just- I, and
1: it, it's amazing to hear that, and I, and I appreciate those who pick up on all the subtleties. And, and the subtleties are the, like the book has so much depth for those who seek further into it. Like we spent weeks on what kind of paper. Like we wouldn't do the book unless it was hardback. We wouldn't do the book unless right. we could use this paper. We wouldn't do the book unless we could have certain things printed on certain pages, and you know the amount. Kind of back and forth, because for us, it was, you know, say the proverb, there's a proverb that actually came really late in the book to the process, like three weeks before we had to go to, to print when we were kind of an awkward number of pages. And so there's a proverb in there that says a butterfly only lands on quiet hands. Right. I and that was something, that one. it's yeah. a beautiful one. It's one of those things that sometimes I look back and go, I can't believe that came out of my brain on because <laughs> it's one of those things that kind of just feels quite timeless And so then with Nikki, she was like, okay, well, if we're going to do butterflies, it has to be this butterfly because this is the butterfly that has this kind of spiritual essence to it. It has to face this way. It has to be flapping. It can't be still. And so if you were someone who really loved that kind of stuff, you know, it's almost like there's a whole secret background to the book as well that we just did for ourselves. So we knew it could be a timeless thing that holds up. And Mm -hmm. like all those Proverbs you know, cause I actually have a lot of them framed around my house. You could just, I mean, there's about something like 36 proverbs in there. If even if you just pulled those out all individually, there's just a lot of timelessness to that. And that was really mm-hmm. important to make that feel mm-hmm. like a timeless bit of sharing that people could digest or just go, yeah, I get it. I feel that.
0: No, yeah. it was Man, the integration is just genius level, genius level integration. And now I'm excited that. about going back and trying to see if I can find some of these Easter eggs. <laughs> Easter yeah. Eggs. And the
1: one, thing I, the one thing I will say, because you mentioned it, there's a, there's a story in the prologue, which is a story, the the only part of the book that's, let's call it arguably fiction. Like there's a story mm-hmm. at the beginning where it talks about a little girl named Koa who goes to visit her her grandpa in the hospital. And it kind of explains or shares the metaphor that anything is possible with a blank sheet of paper, right? It's like the preface to right. folding which for me was a huge risk. I literally like I wrote it and showed my team and there. I was like, can I put this in the book? And everyone was like, I'm not sure because it's not really the what the book's about. And then yeah. other people were like, this actually really sets the tone. And they made it into the international version of the book. So if you get the book anywhere outside the US, it's in there, but it didn't make it into the US book because Damn of it. logistical things like, Number of pages that they wanted in the book and things like that, mm-hmm. but luckily the book is now like you know it's it's in like thirty-five odd countries and it's like translating like twelve languages. But the U.S. one doesn't have that. It's in the audiobook, so if you do the audiobook, you can hear it. But that was mm-hmm. actually one of my favorite parts about that whole book. It was writing that first, you know, eight pages. Where
0: did that story come from, man? I mean, why little girl? Why hospital? Why is she taking the train? Like, what? what where did that even? Where'd you get that idea?
1: I think a part of me really wants to be a fiction writer and I just haven't mm. had the courage to write fiction. And that was. Brother, I you guess, have to write uh, a novel because yeah.
0: you are gifted. Thank you're you. you're gifted. Yeah,
1: that was you make me wonder anthem, like, what man. am I,
0: what, how am I calling myself a writer? And I'm, you know, this guy's oh, out of here.
1: No, thank you. That means a lot. Um, there was a lot of symbolism there. Like Ko is the name of my niece, right? Ko is my niece. And that was the mm. story of her having the experience with my dad and uh, him imparting wisdom onto the family through possibility.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Everything's layered in metaphor. Everything's layered in either overt wisdom or subtle. Um, yeah. But I, f- I find a lot of joy in writing fiction. I just, I'm not sure I've got the the courage yet to do 80,000 words of fiction to, yeah. to see how that would unfold.
0: I also want people to understand this is not, we're not talking about stock stories and very surface level Type of anecdotes. One story that really made me stop in my tracks was the one about the teacher. The med- you were in this meditation experience, and the te- and some woman was crying and sobbing and stuff, and, and the yeah. way the teacher responded to that. Can you share yeah. just the, <clears throat> that story briefly?
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's a real story as well. This is a story of an experience when I was in Australia. I was literally just going to class as a student, and we were in a practice. It was a meditation practice, and this woman had come in, and she was obviously noticeably upset. She was crying. She was sobbing. She was in the back of the room kind of tearing up and <laughs> right. You know, taking air time and, you know, basic human nature is to coddle the person, ask them how they're doing, how they feel. Okay. And that was essentially what everyone was doing because it had gone on for like five, 10 minutes or whatever it was. But the teacher essentially interjected finally and said, why are you stealing everyone's experience? Like, why are you disrupting this moment? Why are you being selfish in your suffering? Like, why are you choosing to suffer in this moment? And obviously she didn't receive that well. It became a little bit of a back and forth. And she obviously stormed out and kind of, it was that sense. <clears throat> and, you know, obviously it was a bit like you could hear like a pin drop. Everyone was just like, <laughs> it, you know, it's I mean, it's, it's like, it's like, if you being the nicest guy in the world, almost right. felt like you were having a go at someone, like, why are you disrupting the room and choosing your suffering over everyone else's experience? You just wouldn't expect that to come out of your mouth, but then mm-hmm. when you step back from it, and the lesson you draw from it is that it was the idea that you know the suffering that we have, regardless of the emotion that's attached to it, is a choice in a lot of times that we make to allow ourselves to prolong that sense of sadness or uncomfortableness. Now, not with everything in the world, but in a lot of cases for us to prolong our suffering or our misery is a Mm -hmm. choice, but to detach from it, to move on, to grow from it, that's a lot of hard work in that, but it doesn't negate the fact that it's not a choice. And so that was the lesson I took from that is that there's a difference between suffering and pain, that suffering is a choice that we make even if it's a hard choice to do the opposite or an easy choice to continue the suffering. But for me, I was literally like, you know, I was like front row to this thing exploding in front of me first on the side of the woman going, that is wildly out of order. And then going to the other side, going, I get it. And then years later going, I understand it.
0: And that exchange between the woman and the teacher with the woman it's like, don't you see my pain? And
1: mm-hmm. he says,
0: "No, I can't see it. All <laughs> I see is your suffering." It's so yeah. like, wow, it's another yeah. level.
1: No, and I say this with a lot of inspiration and reverence to teachers like you and teachers like Johnny and and teachers that I've sat with. You know, these are the types of things that I've always, you know, sometimes you hear things go into your brain and then it bounces around and you kind of then make a metaphor of it your own way out of it. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. these are the types of things where you know a lot of these maybe are. A spark of inspiration, but a lot of it is just my interpretation of the way I have heard things or understand things or can explain things a different way. But that experience and that moment where it was, I don't see your pain, I just see suffering. It's one of those things where your mind just explodes in the moment and you go, oh, and then it stays with you. And then it, it, it forms a baseline of a new thought or a new perspective.
0: So how has your idea of success evolved? To today, where where are we at with it?
1: It's arbitrary. It's subjective. You know, success mm-hmm. really is. You know, it's not really marked by anything because growing up, success was this school, that job, that income level, right? Mm-hmm. And I was, again, in those early years, I was lucky where I got into that school, I got that job, I got that income level, so I kind of ticked boxes. So then it became, what is success? As I moved into like this world of yoga and meditation, early success was that festival, that studio, Mm -mm. you know, that workshop, those conversations. And so, again, I was lucky maybe because I was a man, because I was Asian, because I was American living in the UK, because I was Australian. You know, I had a lot of things that, and I don't want to speak for anyone else, but it was pretty easy for me to stand out because I had a a list of differences just by being myself. So I was quote unquote unique Right. Asian right. male yoga teacher who teaches meditation, who lives in London, but also is American. Right. And so I became an easy token of the practice. And so mm-hmm. I was elevated in a lot of conversations. So I'd always kind of achieved different benchmarks that I thought was success. Now, for me, success is just freedom freedom to do what I want with my day, to be able to facilitate a training or an event and, and see people actually have those transformations that I had mm-hmm. I mean to see people actually go, Oh, wow, this is actually, you know, we, I still teach a lot of 200 hour teacher training programs. And those are some of the most special moments. Cause you, you know, those, that's, those are the first moments where people go, Oh, or we go to a just breathe event. We have a, a monthly event called quiet club, which is open to the public general public Come conversation. We go community conversation and quiet and you just have people, you just literally see light bulbs switch on. Right. You know? And yeah. and for me, success is to be able to create environments, communities and spaces where people can have those epiphanies that I were lucky enough to have in my own journey with it. And especially now more than ever post pandemic or wherever we are pandemic. It's a lot of things shutting down. There's a lot of light bulbs and lampposts going off. There's a lot of studios closing And I think there is a need, at least for me, that success is maintaining spaces that people can have these kind of sacred moments or special experiences and feel like they're a part of something because there is a lot of hardship out there in our community as far as longer term sustainability at the moment.
0: And also one of my takeaways from your book, I think on a personal level would be success is being as present as possible. Mm.
1: Yeah. I think the world is easily distracted. There's a, there's more temptation and distraction than ever. And so mm-hmm. how can we gift attention and time as a metric of success? And oftentimes for people, you know, I remember growing up, I always had the friend who would always happily give you money or pay for something, but would never give you their time or mm-hmm. to have a conversation. You know, it's like, oh, let's go out for dinner. No, it's cool. I'll just buy you dinner and send it to your house. Or, oh, we're all going to go shopping <laughs> and buy a present for Vanessa for her birthday. Oh no, let me just give you twenty bucks. Just write my name on the card. And for mm-hmm. them, that was equal inclusion. And that seems to be a lot of times how our lives work now. We're we're looking for efficiency or efficacy or or or, or easy ways of 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 kind of accomplishment as right. opposed to quality time conversation. And that somehow has become the rarity of, can I just have quality time? And, you know, I can be as guilty of it as other people where, you know, I'll say this honestly here, this conversation, you and I, you know, we've known each other a long time. I love these conversations. I should probably message you and just voice note you more, you know, Mm -hmm. out of the blue, not needing to schedule something that we're going to put out because I (laughs) get a lot, I get a lot out of just listening to your voice or asking you a question or, you know, and I, and I have lots of people in my life that I do that with. And success for me now is doing that with intentionality, with presence, proactively, without mm. motive or reason or output. Love
0: that. And it, that is a really great reminder. And maybe let's, let's do that. Let's do that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you've inspired me, man, to explore this whole idea of making paper uh, cranes. Great. Again, I had help with this one. So, uh, but that's yeah, it's something, that I'm, it's something that I, I would like to add to my repertoire of mindful practices. So, thank Mm -hmm. you for introducing this work to the world. It's not surprising that this way of seeing things—the seeds were planted as in childhood—and that you were in the right place at the right time with those two parents and those siblings and in that place to be able to take that which you were both gifted with and afflicted with—the asthma and everything—and turn it into something very powerful and useful for helping us to have a slightly better time showing up in our own lives. So I just want to acknowledge you for that
1: and for all of your work.
0: I mean, you've done so much, man. You got an app, you've you've got these communities you've created and you're still doing all of this and you got the books and I, I really do hope you keep writing. And I hope that everybody gets a chance to experience your most recent book because it's, it is a very special offering in the world of books where so many people are just kind of mailing it in. And this, this was, you know, I, I, I can appreciate how much went behind creating this, this masterpiece.
1: Uh, that means more than, than, you know, not because of the, the time and the work that was put in, but just the fact that it's received in, in a meaningful way. So thank you oh, very yeah. much.
0: And it's not just like, Oh yeah, I started working on the pandemic. This is a life. This is life's work, man. You know, yeah. you're drawing on stuff from your whole life.
1: And yeah, um, and it, and it was beautiful. for me. It was one of those like the pandemic was a gift of being, let's call it, able to write part of a memoir in the vehicle of a yeah. gentle conversation.
0: Yeah, I love it. Well, I will put all the information for everyone to be able to grab that in the show notes, and I hope you and I get a chance to cross paths at some point very soon. Absolutely. Take care, sir. We'll talk to you later.
1: Thanks, my friend. Catch y'all soon. All right, man. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with
0: Michael James Wong. His book, Sin Bazuru, which is spelled S-E-N-B-A-Z-U-R-U, is out now everywhere books are sold. You can also follow him on Instagram, which is at Michael James Wong, as it sounds. And his book also has an Instagram account, which is at Sinbazuru book. And of course, we'll put the links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. Speaking of lightwatkins.com, while you're there, you'll see my announcement that the audio book for Knowing Where to Look is out now. It's read by me, of course, and it includes some bonus commentary about the backstory of some of the most popular doses of inspiration in the book. So if you're a fan of the hardcover, you will certainly cherish the audiobook as a perfect companion to the hardcover version. So definitely check that out when you can. You can also get information on my Happiness Insiders community, which has a three-day free trial and a complimentary seven-day meditation kickstart if you join. And being a part of that community will change your life from the inside out. Just go to thehappinessinsiders.com to get more information about that and start your free three-day trial today. Finally, if you can subscribe and leave a rating or review for this podcast, that would be the best way to share these conversations. Ratings matter more than you probably realize when it comes to making this podcast more searchable. I don't have advertisers or sponsors yet, so it's still very much a labor of love. And each episode takes hours of pre and post production. And just a small way that you can help me spread this message is by taking 10 seconds to rate it. Just look at your screen, click on the name of the podcast scroll down past the previous episodes and you'll see the five stars. And you can just click the star on the far right and you've left a rating. And if you want to go the extra mile and leave a couple of lines about what you liked about the podcast, then you can leave a review. So thanks so much for that. And I hope to see you back here next week for the next story from the end of the tunnel. Until then, as always, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you very much and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.